How high's the water, mama? Two feet high and rising. How high's the water, papa? She said it's two feet high and rising. Well, we can make it to the road in a homemade boat, cause that's the only thing we got left that'll float. It's already over all the wheat notes, two feet high and rising. The Red River rose to record levels in Fargo-Moorhead this week, and while things may have settled down and water levels have been steadily falling, we'll hear how the National Weather Service in Grand Forks is keeping an eye out for what the Wiley River has in store for points downstream. And even as a large part of the country is still fighting snow and floods, the National Severe Storms Lab in Norman, Oklahoma, is gearing up for yet another tornado season with new and better technology than ever before. From blizzards to floods to tornadoes, it's jet streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. She said it's four feet high and rising. Hey, come look through the window pane. Hello again, everybody, and thanks for joining us. I'm Stephen John, sitting in again for Paul Hutner, but of course, our other jet streaming weather wizards are here as usual Dr. Mark Seeley, professor of climatology and meteorology at the University of Minnesota, and NPR meteorologist Craig Edwards. Welcome back. It's been quite a week. Winter's hanging on, Stephen, that's for sure. Yeah, this is a nasty April Fool's joke, if you ask me, Mark. <laughs> to lead things off, we have a, a regional weather record that was made this week, and this is no uh, no fooling, is it, Mark Seeley? No. Uh, International Falls, of course, noted nationwide for its icebox status and cold temperatures in the winter. They certainly have had a cold winter, but... I think the uh, landmark for the winter of 08-09 will be their snowfall record, Stephen. With the additions of uh, last night's storm, they're now close to 123 inches of seasonal snowfall at International Falls, which breaks their record set back in 1995-96, which was 116 inches. Wow. A- any idea what they get as like an average in International oh, uh, oh, their numbers are down maybe around uh, 55, 60, wow. 65, somewhere wow. in that range. Yeah. But So they're well, well above that. And uh, the other feature there, characteristic of the 09, uh, 08, 09 winter, Stephen, is they, the frequency that they've measured snowfall. Uh, it's a compilation of a whole bunch of days with rather small snowfall amounts. They've had lots and lots, well over 105 days with snow occurring mm. at International Falls. With all that snow on the ground, Craig Edwards, do you think uh, International Falls is going to have any spring a- at all? Or are they going to just going to morph right into summer? Yeah, isn't it something? Is this the start of the glacier up there that I'm just <laughs> wondering? At the, the, you're going to take a long time to melt that. I talked with a uh, friend, uh, associate up there at Grand Rapids. Uh, it's a lot of snow and ice on the, still uh, ice on the lake, so we'll have to see how that plays out for the fishing opener come May. Yep, not long uh, away. The flooding, of course, in the Red River Valley has been all over the news, and it sure led our jet streaming listener inquiries this week. One of the folks we heard from was Nate Holdren in Minneapolis, who wrote, I've been watching the news from Fargo and Moorhead. My heart goes out to these people and I respect their courage. Can you explain to me why this flood is happening? I don't understand it at all. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, there's a number of factors that go into that region on the North American continent. Number one, and first and foremost, Stephen, is that here's a watershed that is rather substantial uh, in area and flows to the north. And so as the landscape thaws, the uh, channeled flow goes into higher latitude, which is still frozen. Uh, another feature is the uh, slope. The slope of the, of the uh, basin is very, very shallow, only about 4 to 8-inch drop per linear mile. 
So uh, it takes quite a while to shed that. Also, we have frost in the soil. We have a frozen layer that doesn't permit percolation of the moisture into the soil. And so most of that has to be discharged as surface runoff. And there's a host of other things, abundant snowfall. And, uh, of course, the period of March 22nd to March 25th was one of the wettest four-day periods in history across portions of that watershed. So there's a number of things. And, of course, we've altered it. Finally, you know, uh, man has altered the landscape up there. And we tend to discharge the surplus moisture off the landscape at a faster rate than, say, two, three hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, the floodwaters have fallen below most of the sandbag levees protecting Fargo at this point, which is, of course, feeding optimism that the city has tamed the Red River at least for now. As of today, the river has fallen to 37.37 feet, still far above flood stage, but below the top of the city's permanent flood walls, which are topped with another five feet of sandbags. City officials said businesses would be allowed to reopen today. While the lower water levels took pressure off the flood walls, engineers and National Guard troops braved a blinding snowstorm this week to monitor the dikes for signs of stress. For the latest developments of where we are in the flood fight and where things may be going in the days to come, we're going to be uh, talking once again to Mark Ewens from the National Weather Service in Grand Forks. Mark, thanks again for joining us on Jet Streaming today. Good morning, everyone. How are you all doing this morning? Well, we're doing okay. How are they doing uh, along the Red River Valley? Well, in many sections, they're not doing very well. Obviously, as you've indicated, we've just come through a flood of record in a large part of the Red River Valley. Not just the Fargo-Moorhead area, but points south, Abercrombie, Hillsborough, river gauges going to places that we have not seen before. And as you indicated, due to a lot of circumstances, it actually caught some people by surprise because folks get fixated on the amount of snow as being a primary factor. And as was so eloquently stated by Dr. Seeley, it's more than just that. It is. In, in fact, you were uh, mentioning that uh, there is not as much moisture in the ground or the area has not received as much precipitation as it had in the uh, historic 1997 flooding. That is correct. For example, just looking at Fargo as a proxy for the southern Red River Valley, and that would be a good example to go with. Uh, Fargo so far has had 79.5 inches of snow through the winter season. Now, that's well above normal, obviously, but it is behind the record pace that was set in 1996-1997 uh, when on the order of 100 and, I believe, 17 inches altogether, if my memory serves me right, something in that range fell. And yet the snowpack in the southern basin this winter season, by the time just ahead of the melt, only had two, three, maybe four inches of liquid in it and another two to three inches of rain fell. So you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of six, seven inches of liquid equivalent total, yet we saw flood levels that were above 97, when in 97 we had water contents of 10, 12, 13 inches or more. So with uh, a half or less of the water content in a lot of locations, we had a a much worse flood. Uh, Mark, this is Craig Edwards, and I I recall hearing about a week or two before the flood started to unfold that there there was some observations from people that are saying, boy, it just doesn't seem like it's going to be that bad because we're not seeing the snow we saw in 96, 97. But I want, what I wanted to ask you was, as I was following this forecast last week and we were talking about it, the, the forecast range was 39 to 41. It was tracking right along that up to about 40 feet on Friday. Uh, Thursday, uh, all of a sudden, the forecast jumped 
42 to 43 feet. What type of evidence were you looking at scientifically and hydrology-wise that were suggesting the river was going to come up that high? Because it looked to me like the downstream uh, rivers were already had already crested, and that water was making its way through the system, and it was tracking toward 41 feet. And then uh, I would I would say I was a little bit surprised to see 42, 43 feet. Was what was the basis of that uh, up, update of that forecast? That's a great uh, question, Craig. The main issue was when the USGS went out and actually was able to get some flow measurements, when they were able to get out on bridges and boats and do some testing, they found out that there was actually more water in the channel than had been expected based on the rating curves and previous observations. Remember, when you get to levels of this height, you often have what we call breakouts or transbasin flow, where the water is bypassing the gauges. So despite the extreme height, for example, at Abercrombie, there was more water flowing around the gauge and getting into the Red River downstream of Wapit and Breckenridge than originally thought. So there was a huge concern that the, the extra flow, which was greater than it was in 97, was going to create an even higher crest. So the river was ahead of the rating curve for a while. Mark, um, I wanted to look ahead a bit. Um, what do you see or what are your uh, briefing materials as far as uh, the residents further downstream now, say, uh, oh, you know, the Halstead area up to uh, Pimbana? Uh, what, what are you seeing as far as, oh, the next seven to ten days? Well, the river at Halstead appears to have reached its high point for this particular event and is slowly falling. Grand Forks at last report was at 49.47, it looks like, and still slowly creeping upward, getting uh, getting onto that 50-foot mark, so still rising downstream. A big problem is river ice. Uh, quickly at Oslo, it's 38.2, getting up to about 38.5, and, a half. and uh, Drayton's a little low, closing, closing in on 42 feet on its way to at least 43.5 and, and continuing beyond that point, and down at Pembina, 42 Uh, 0.3 almost, and it's on its way towards 52, and it may go above that. What really had saved the Fargo area, and actually a lot of the region downstream from Fargo, perhaps from even higher crests, was the cold weather following last week's snowstorm. That really greatly diminished the inflows to the Red River in a very short period of time. So had those inflows not stopped, Fargo would have seen the 43-foot level most likely. Say, Mark, following up on that, I, I think you're you're dead on in describing the benefits of the cold weather that we've had. But, of course, the downside, and I think what's going to characterize this 2009 flood as a classic case study, is the endurance aspect or the prolonged duration of having to fight this flood and endure it for such a long period of time. Can you... Being a person who's been in the area for a number of years, can you describe generally how you and your fellow citizens are holding up? Because this really is turning into kind of endurance when it comes to stress. Well, yes, it's wearing on folks, obviously. For those of us who have been here for quite a number of years and have seen progressively worse floods, we think of 79, 89, 97, and, and now this one. It it has, on the one hand, taught us lessons on how to deal with the stress and how to just take a step back at moments and perhaps do other things to refocus and realize that when you're away from the office, away from the job, leave that behind for a while. It's the same thing, though, with the, the public, that they have to realize if you're done with the fight, you've done as much as you possibly can, then you just step back and take a breather. That's easily said. 
difficult to do. And having been through 97, where I had to take the family and evacuate them, then come back here and continue to work through it, knowing that my house was being flooded, it's difficult to do. I understand that. But for your own safety and your own sanity, if you can't get a decompression schedule going, as it were, you're not going to be any use to anybody at some point. And, of course, I'm certainly not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but having been through it, I know the pressure can literally become debilitating if you let it get too great. Mark, do you expect there to be some discussion after this flooding event is over uh, about what is happening in the uh, region, uh, say, with agriculture uh, and other changes, man-made changes to the to the river basin there? Uh, because of what's going on this year and, you, as you mentioned, the, 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 the lack of uh, precipitation that would seem to indicate big floods, is this going to really uh, uh, start the conversations all over again? I hope it will, and I just want to clarify one point. Yes, even though the, the snowfalls this winter have been low, we need to go back further. And, and as Dr. Seeley pointed out, the, the antecedent conditions, the extremely wet fall, people forget about that. Fargo is in first place. Grand Forks is in first place for the October through March precipitation. Obviously not necessarily in first place for snowfall, but we loaded the gun by saturating the topsoil and then freezing it so deeply. But yes, the, the the idea of how to address this in the future, the conversation started years ago with the waffle plan, and that basically would be returning a lot of the land to its natural state to allow to hold the water just a little longer. Uh, obviously, that's something that's going to have to occur outside of uh, this environment, outside actually of this agency, because that's not really within the purview of the Weather Service or the Department of Commerce. We're simply the predictive branch, but I think that folks will go back and look at it, and I hope the discussions continue. And, Mark, uh, what about this uh, possibility of a second crest? There's been a lot of discussion this week with all of the snow and the cold that we've had. It's going to warm up eventually, and this snow is going to have to melt. So uh, what are your latest uh, forecasts on that? Well, again, in the near term, uh, as has been indicated, the cold temperatures are a great thing. They have pretty well stopped the runoff, even though the snow yesterday was pretty pretty wet. It, most of it will be sequestered in fields and such. However, you're right, at some point now, we're into April, we're going to have to start warming up. At least in the near term, the forecast continues an ideal melt pattern with below normal uh, temperatures during the period that will allow a little melting during the day and then slow the melting down or stop it at night. That should continue for the next week to 10 days. Beyond that is really a wild card. Once, of course, we get further into the middle of April, anything can happen. Uh, it, the whole science of forecasting beyond seven days, heck, we have a hard time with 24 hours sometimes, but the whole science of forecasting beyond seven days is really in its infancy. While we've got tools that are much better than they were a few years ago, they are not perfect. We're just going to have to watch this. Our indications of some more storminess, again, persistence. We've been in a stormy pattern. It stops and it starts. That's the nature of climate. It'll probably come back at some point in the future. We just have to hope that the timing is such that the rivers have gotten down sufficiently to allow extra moisture back into them. Well, you keep an eye on it and uh, keep us posted. We will. That's Mark Ewens from the National Weather Service in Grand Forks. Thanks for joining us on Jet Streaming today.
A couple of weeks ago, we told you about the new criteria announced by the National Weather Service for issuing severe thunderstorm warnings based on hail size. They used to issue warnings based on three-quarter-inch diameter hail. But this summer, the National Weather Service Central Region will issue severe thunderstorm warnings based on one-inch diameter or larger hail. The change is welcome to many media meteorologists, including Craig Edwards. With us to talk about that and new developments in tornado and severe storm spotting is Don Burgess from the National Severe Storms Laboratory in Norman, Oklahoma. Don, thanks so much and welcome to Jet Streaming. Thank you. I'm glad to participate. So how does one-inch hail better reflect the threshold for severe damaging thunderstorms? Well, it, the, the smaller hail can be a threat to agriculture, but there isn't really much that you can do with crops in the field to protect them. And for things that can be protected, so now I'm speaking of things like automobiles, the furniture you have on your back patio, other kinds of things that could be brought in out of the weather, the, the small hail really doesn't impact them, and actually one inch or even slightly larger than one inch is the size that begins to do damage. We did some studies back in the 1990s when this criteria was first being considered for adjustment, and we found, for instance, with automobiles, it's actually at about an inch and a quarter, 1.25 inches, where, where the skin of that automobile, the metal, first begins to be susceptible, and and glass breakage, now this breakage is the fracturing or the spidering, doesn't occur to, to sizes slightly larger than that. So we still have a buffer between where most of the damage is going to occur and, and our threshold at one inch size. Uh, Don Craig Edwards here, and I appreciate uh, the excellent presentation you gave at the Skyborne Workshop. And uh, I also appreciate the fact that the Weather Service didn't rush to change this, although it certainly took a course of my career and beyond to get the hail size up to one inch for severe weather in the central region. But you talked a little bit about what dual polarization can do to give the forecasters a better idea of the hail size instead of sort of guessing at it based on the, the vertical profile they get now from the Doppler radar, which does not give them real good clues uh, on the algorithm them sort of hail side. They just sort of start out with a guess and then they wait for a report to come in. What can you tell us about what the advantage is going to be to the uh, uh, radar operator making a warning decision for hail based on the dual polarization technique? Okay, sure. And it was good to see you again, Craig. Uh, the, the dual polarization upgrade, an upgrade that, that we're currently underway with for all of the next red radars around the country, is really going to help with hail. And dual polarization means we're going to send out alternating signals that are horizontally polarized and vertically polarized. Turns out, particularly raindrops, have a large horizontal axis. They're oblate spheroids. And so by alternating horizontal and vertical axes, we can see precipitation particle size and shape. And in that way, we can much more easily directly distinguish raindrops from hailstones. So for the first time with radar, we won't be inferring the location of, of hail. We'll actually be measuring it, and we can display on, on our radar displays now uh, a particular color. I think we're going to choose red and say this red area is actually where the hail is falling. And again, because we're measuring this precipitation particle type and size, we can do a much better job of estimating just how big those hailstones are.
Uh, Don, Mark Seeley here. Uh, I was wondering if you could share with us and the listeners uh, uh, your thoughts on the uh, on the Vortex 2 team. How did you compose this team, and uh, and how do you see the, the findings uh, being uh, useful within the uh, National Weather Service system? Okay. Our, our Vortex 2 experiment is actually a decade later uh, follow-on to a Vortex experiment we did back in the mid-1990s to try and better understand tornadoes. There's still a lot we don't understand about the formation of tornadoes, their low-level wind speeds, or even how we can use numerical models to, to better forecast the, the storm scale and the tornado itself. So, so we want to do this basic research, and we've been trying to put this thing together for about four or five years. Uh, we have a steering committee. I'm on that steering committee. And the participants are basically the people who participated in Vortex 1 a decade ago, plus a couple of new people that bring new and exciting instruments to the experiment. So it's going to be a mobile experiment, and it's going to have lots, uh, lots of different kinds of instruments that go out to the field. Uh, Don, is Craig Edwards again. You talked about the so-called armada, of this the, this whole contingent and array of equipment. And could you tell us a little bit about the drone? You talked about a drone type of uh, sensor. What, what's that all about? Yeah, we, we call them UAVs or, or unmanned aerial vehicles. There are obviously hazardous areas in severe storms. One of the important areas to learn about for tornado genesis is the right rear flank that's where the hook echo is located, and that's where this important rear flank downdraft is located. But that's not a place where we want to have a manned aircraft fly. The, the wind, wind speeds are large, a lot of shear, a lot of turbulence, and that's where the tornadoes form. So we want to have unmanned aircraft, and a much more safe way to do it. And so we intend to fly these UAVs uh, in that rear flank downdraft area to learn about the winds, and particularly the temperature, the important temperature and dew point measurements above the ground. Don, now you're there at the National Weather Center in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. We hear your uh, your organization, your your lab, spoken a lot about in the summertime. But what are you doing uh, when there aren't severe storms brewing? Well, the, we are a research lab, and, and research is a 12-month-a-year job. It's only occasionally that you actually go out in the field and collect the data. The rest of the time you're analyzing the data. And of course we work very closely with partners here. We partner with the Storm Prediction Center that's that's right here with us in this building uh, for how to better do the forecast. So things that we learn through research then we put those into practice with the Storm Prediction Center. We also partner with the local National Weather Service Forecast Office right here in this building, and they issue the warnings for this area. So things that we learn from Doppler radar that that uh, cause uh, increases in understanding and new applications, then, then we work with the local forecast office to test those. We actually have a hazardous weather test bed, we call it, that's a space right between the Storm Prediction Center, the SPC, and the forecast office, and we get in there and we work with those people. So, so we collect the data, we analyze the data, and then we move to the applications, and that's a full-time job. It sounds fascinating. I bet there's a lot of uh, uh, neat things going on, interesting equipment. It, it, can, can, can the public stop by and check this out? Yes, they can. Our National Weather Service building is open for tours. 
we can even take drop-ins if it's small groups, but if it's larger groups, they need to be prearranged. But we give a lot of tours. We're, we're proud of the facility. It's a joint facility between the federal government and the University of Oklahoma, and it's uh, available for tours during all regular working hours, non-holiday periods. Great. Well, Don Burgess, National Severe Storms Lab in Norman, Oklahoma, thanks for uh, dropping by today on Jet Streaming. Well, thanks for having me. It's time for the website of the week. Craig Edwards, what have you got for us? Well, this is fascinating. Uh, Don talked about this uh, co-located offices there, and he, he didn't allude to the fact, but I, I heard him speak on Saturday, and he said that they now have a, a center called the National Weather Center. So we talk about the Storm Prediction Center, the Hurricane Center, but these combined offices have got together, and they develop what is now called the National Weather Center in Norman, Oklahoma. Their website, if you want to find out more about it, is NWC. .ou.edu. So that's the National Weather Center in Norman, Oklahoma. All right. And the weather word, or is it words of the week, Mark Seeley? <laughs> well, I think following up our discussion with Mark Ewens about the uh, spring floods, uh, Stephen, it's wise to consider at least a couple of terms the Weather Service and hydrologists commonly use uh, that are very, very strong attributes of the Red River uh, Basin that's flooding right now. Sinuosity is is the uh, term used to describe the threaded channel distance as if you uh, uh, took a string down the middle of the channel and compared that distance, uh, which we all know curves and threads mm-hmm. its way mm-hmm. through the landscape, to the linear distance. And the ratio of those distances is called the sinuosity. Now, that used as a marker for how the flow across the basin and what its velocity might be is combined with the uh, slope gradient. The slope gradient in the channel is another important attribute. And the drop on the Red River Valley, as we alluded to earlier, Stephen, is only four to eight inches per linear mile. Mm -hmm. So you combine those two attributes, and it's a no wonder that we get so many ice dams on the uh, Red River watershed, and those have huge impacts on the flood flow because we have a meandering channel right. and we have a, sl- a shallowly sloped channel. And so the discharge, the flow rate is very slow there. And of course, it's going into frozen ground. It's right. going uh, to the north. So those two attributes contribute significantly to the fact that that basin has a lot of ice dams on it. That's a really good point. I don't think folks really uh, stop and think about how the Red River isn't just making a beeline north to uh, Winnipeg. That's right. It does meander back and forth across the prairie. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Mark. Remember, if you have a question about sinuosity or any kind of weather terminology, you can drop us a line anytime and pose your question to our weather team. Just go to npr.org and find the jet streaming page on the program's drop box and go to contact jet streaming on our page to submit your questions online. And we have more information about our second annual severe weather forum coming up. It's your chance to meet the entire jet streaming crew and get your severe weather questions answered in person. We're even going to have a few special guests join us, too, including Jet Streaming alumna Kathy Wurzer and longtime Twin Cities meteorologist Paul Douglas. Tickets are free, but you'll need to reserve them. Just go to minnesotapublicradio.org and click on events. It's on the calendar on the right-hand side. Just look for Wednesday, 
May 6th at 7 p.m. for the Jet Streaming Severe Weather Forum here at Minnesota Public Radio. Another great show. Thanks, Mark Seeley and Craig Edwards. Thank you, Stephen. I'm looking forward to spring when it shows up. We're going to hold you to a forecast that includes spring sometime down the road. That wraps this week's show. For producers Patty Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and technical whiz Rick Hepsinski, I'm Stephen John. Be sure to keep your ear here to Jet Streaming and your weather eye on the sky. I say.